Let's start with Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. You may know her for her bare, crossfit-toned biceps, her speculations about Jewish space lasers, and her promotion of the QAnon conspiracy cult. And she is all that, as the speech she gave on the House floor in early February 2021, after being stripped of her committees by the Democratic leadership, made clear. These things bothered me deeply, and I realized just watching CNN or Fox News, I may not find the truth. And so what I did is I started looking up things on the Internet, asking questions like most people do every day. Use Google. And I stumbled across something, and this was at the end of 2017, called QAnon. Well, these posts were mainly about this Russian collusion information. A lot of it was some of what I would see on the news at night. And I got very interested in it. So I posted about it on Facebook. I read about it. I talked about it. I asked questions about it. And then more information came from it. But you see, here's the problem. Throughout 2018, because I was upset about things and didn't trust the government, really, because the people here weren't doing the things that I thought they should be doing for us, the things that I just told you I cared about. And I want you to know, A lot of Americans don't trust our government, and that's sad. Many observers were skeptical of Green's reversal. Wearing a black mask emblazoned with free speech in red capital letters, she walked back what seemed to be not just her brand, but deeply held beliefs about power in America. Many saw this mea culpa as only a cynical attempt to return to power after suffering what is a rare punishment in the House. And yet, Green's words are worth paying attention to. She referenced her lack of trust in media and government, her disquiet about the state of the nation, her use of the internet to research new facts, and her dialogue with like-minded others in an algorithmically created social media bubble. Perhaps most importantly, Green described her conversion to QAnon as a common American experience. It had been a slide into a new self, that this outspoken and brazen conservative saw as almost passive. The problem with that is, though, is I was allowed to believe things that weren't true, and I would ask questions questions about them and talk about them. And that is absolutely what I regret, because if it weren't for the Facebook post and, and comments that I liked in 2018, I wouldn't be standing here today and you couldn't point a finger and accuse me of anything wrong because I've lived a very good life that I'm proud of, my family's proud of, my husband's proud of, my children are proud of, and that's what my district elected me for. She was, Green insisted, a good person, a person who came to Congress to work. And she warned others, those ordinary Americans like her, about how dangerous conspiracy theories are and how they lure us in. And I want to tell you, any source, and I say this to everyone, Any source of information that is a mix of truth and a mix of lies is dangerous, no matter what it is saying, what party it is helping, anything or any country it's about. It's dangerous. And these are the things that happen on the left and the right. And it is a true problem in our country. Maybe Green lost you when she entered the realm of whataboutism, claiming that conspiracy theories arise on both the left and the right, and that they are equally damaging. 
But perhaps we should think about those who have gone down that partisan rabbit hole as having expertise and insight about the ways that any source that is a mix of truth and a mix of lies, as Green puts it, is dangerous to our political culture. This is why, after he wrote an article about conspiracism in both political parties on December 14, 2022, I asked my friend Ryan Gerdusky to come on the show to talk to us about how conspiracies have infected our electoral system. A conservative media and messaging expert, Ryan has worked as a journalist, a campaign consultant, a super PAC organizer, and a television pundit. He's also the author with Harlan Hill of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution. As importantly, Ryan has friendships as diverse as Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ann Coulter, and, well, me. Ryan and I disagree about a lot of things when it comes to the national political agenda, as you will learn if you peruse his substack, the National Populist Newsletter. And yet, I always find our dialogue useful, particularly since it helps me listen more carefully to a broad range of political voices that today's media environment makes it easy to ignore. Join Ryan and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, co-executive editor of Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode nine, I Started Looking Things Up on the Internet. Gerdusky, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Claire. You know, when I read your Substack on December 14th, it just really grabbed me because you talk about how politics has become dominated by conspiracy theories. You start with charges by Hillary Clinton partisans that Trump colluded with Russian forces to win the 2016 election. And then you turn to a range of conspiracies on the right, COVID, George Soros, Dominion voting machines, Venezuelan hackers, conspiracies that have really destabilized the GOP. In other words, you're arguing that political partisans across the board are divorced from reality. How did that happen? Well, I think that that is, I think that it's something slowly that happened over time. Like you look at things like trust in the media, which in 1976, Gallup had it that 72% of Americans trust of the media. And now and by 2016, that number drops to 32%. Social trust in a lot of institutions throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s were massively destabilized. And that only increased over time. You know, it used to be that the military was was above 90% and the Supreme Court was above 80. Neither one of those institutions hold that much into account anymore. And I think that what happened is... As there was the, Charles Murray said, the great sword, as people started moving into communities that agreed with them politically, there became less of a conversation that you could understand somebody who was not like you. So in the 1970s, for example, in the 80s, it was not uncommon that a rich person would live in close proximity to a poor person. I'm not just saying like in Manhattan, one lives on 86th and one lives on 96th. I'm saying that they would live within like a building of each other. 
that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen in New York. Doesn't happen in any other community really in America. And then with social media, you could literally make sure your news feeds were only what you basically agreed with, and never challenged your opinion either to debunk it or to make it stronger. You know, someone says something you disagree with, and you sit there and say, "Now, why do I believe that? What is the answer to that?" And you make your actually your argument much stronger. You're allowed to believe whatever. So when Hillary loses in 2016, there was a great book called Shattered. Um, I mentioned it in the piece, and it talks about the Hillary Clinton campaign and how spectacularly fail, how, how failed it was. And at the end of the book, it talks about them already creating the Russian narrative early on. So, Ryan, I want to stop you right there because many of my listeners are going to question the idea of Hillary Clinton as a conspiratorial thinker. And I want to play this podcast excerpt from early 2020, four years after the election she lost, in which Clinton is identifying other politicians as Russian assets. I'm not making any predictions, but I think they've got their eye on somebody who's currently in the Democratic (laughs) primary and are grooming her to be the third-party candidate. Mm-hmm. She's the favorite of the Russians. They have a bunch of sites and bots and other ways of supporting her mm-hmm. so far. And that's assuming Jill Stein will give it up, which she might not because she's also a Russian right. uh, asset. Yeah. yeah, she's a Russian asset. I mean, totally. So other than the fact that we have never seen any proof that then-Democrat Tulsi Gabbard or Jill Stein, who ran as a Green Party candidate in 2016, are actually Russian assets, and Stein wasn't even running in 2020. What should we be thinking about when evaluating such a statement? And how did this idea of Russian assets spread through the liberal media ecosystem? It wasn't just that the Russians had made contact with the Trump campaign, which they did, but the Trump campaign was one of the most disorganized operations in American history. They couldn't open an email, let alone send one out to the Russians. The idea that you know Putin was personally communicating with Trump, the left had made this answer so large that by 2017, 2018, you have Rachel Maddow going on her show saying that you know Putin was going to hack the energy grid in the Dakotas to freeze everyone in the state to death. A spectacular over-embellishment and insane reaction because the corporate press really pushed that narrative. By 2020, when Trump loses during a once-in-a-lifetime, hopefully knock on wood, once-in-a-lifetime pandemic, you have people on the right saying that Venezuelans somehow hacked voting machines in parts of America that doesn't have the internet. It's so over-embellished and it's so insane because you cannot possibly understand. I, I mean, I have so many people saying, how did anyone vote for Joe Biden? There are people who, who do not like Donald Trump and they voted for Joe Biden. Well, that's impossible. Well, it's not impossible. You just don't talk to any of those people. Same thing people on the left saying, how, you know, you're the only one I know who voted for Trump. Well, talk to more people. There's a lot of them. Like, there's just a lot of them and they have opinions and people's politics aren't very linear. You know, there was that great video by the Washington Post where it was um, where it was talking to voters across the country. And there was like one guy and there was at football stadiums and there was this one girl and she was like, I don't like extremism. So I voted for Josh Shapiro and Dr. Oz. Like, and she's like, abortion is my number one issue. I voted for Dr. Oz because it's not a linear thought. It's not like, oh, therefore I must vote this way. There was another guy in Ohio who was like, uh, I think J.D. Vance is a giant phony, but I voted for him. Well, okay, why? Well, it didn't make exact, it's not, a, you can't write a PhD off of it, but that's how people vote. People are, you know, they're nonsensical sometimes, you know, they'll hold contradicting opinions constantly. 
that's just American life and probably life across the whole world. And I think that that really sets people into the belief that there must be a larger conspiracy behind anything that really doesn't go your way. And not saying there's no conspiracies, not saying there's no conspiracies that aren't true, but I would say nine times out of 10, you can either relate it to the fact that maybe you don't know everybody who's, or maybe your, your sample size of, of the electorate is not healthy or that in times that there are failures, like in the case of, let's say, um, machines in certain districts, it's more common than not that human failure is much more likely than uh, people purposely trying to destroy things. I always say there's somebody bad in every job in America. Right now, someone is burning French fries at McDonald's. They're just a bad person in every job in the country. And that includes politics. And, uh, you know, I yeah. intended- <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I hadn't intended to ask you this question, but as you were talking, one of the things I thought about is how accessible polls are, how much data visualization is proliferating during election season, that people think they have all these this evidence to back up what they already think if they're in their own bubble. But in fact, None of that evidence really can tell you what the outcome is going to be, right? Right. Oh, there's so much. Oh, yeah. There's, you know, I was, I got 2022 20, elections wrong. Uh, not, you know, not every election, but I got a few of them, a few big ones wrong because I definitely got high on my own supply and I was looking at data too much and I was ignoring data I didn't like. And then there's also these people that are on social media that are like, oh, you know, 8 million Democrats voted in Georgia and only a million Republicans. Proof of a blue wave across state for Stacey Abrams. Well, no one in Georgia is registered to vote by party. So anyone telling you who is voting by party is lying to you. Same thing in Texas. Same thing in most states, actually. Most states do not have registration by party. So that is one of those things that you sit there and you see and people say, well, I saw this thing on social media, on Instagram or TikTok or Twitter or whatever the case is, or Facebook. That's not necessarily true. And so they latch on to these little nuggets where there may be some information that's relative that's there, but it's half-baked or it's not true. And that becomes more of the truth to explain something that you just that you don't agree with than than the fact that it was uh, that it was something stolen. So take for Arizona, for example, right? Because this is the, we're going to lawsuit and there's a Carrie Lake suit on like, I don't know, like nine different things. And I think two are going to an actual court case. Arizona had nine statewide elections. One was uncontested. So let's, it was a Republican for, for mining inspector. They won uncontested. I don't know what a mining inspector does, but they won. Congratulations. But there were eight other ones. Republicans won four. Democrats won four. Look at the four that the Democrats won, and then look at the four the Republicans won. Now, Republicans in those four, Karen Yee is the most famous because she's the um, treasurer. She won by a huge double-digit margin. And then look at the other four. They unseated two incumbent Democrats. They unseated them for public instructor, this older guy who I'm kind of obsessed with because he's like got a pot belly and he wears like suspenders and he's like just wild. And then this other guy who won for another statewide position, he and they both unseated two incumbent Democrats. Well, okay. do you believe that they were like, you know what, we're going to steal the election, but let's screw around with the Democrats and make them lose a couple statewide elections? It doesn't make any sense. The Republicans held the state legislature. 
Why would they sit there and not say, hey, we're going to give it to Karen Hobbs, but let's make her life miserable by making sure she's a Republican state Senate and state house. That is, it is more reasonable to believe that bad candidates running and on the top of the ticket, Carrie Lake, who was, although she wasn't the legit top of the ticket, but she was the most, she was more identifiable than I think Blake Masters was. Carrie Lake, who spent her, a large portion of her campaign, and I know this as I called the campaign, told them to stop doing it, attacking John McCain and told her last day of the campaign, she said, if you like John McCain, don't vote for me. That she will lose by 17,000 votes out of uh, two and a half million cast. That is less illegitimate than some scheming behind the scenes. And I'm not saying you can't make ballots better. I'm not saying you can't make ballot security better. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to make people feel more secure in their elections. I think you should. I think that the conspiracy is bad for people overall. And I think that votes should be counted earlier and on time and yada, yada, yada. But... You can't sit there and say, look how flawless of a campaign she ran. I can't believe she lost. This is not the case. She spent her last in the campaign trail telling Republicans not to vote for her. And then they didn't. Like, it just doesn't seem that crazy to me. But there is there is one piece of this that people hang on to, I think, which doesn't allow them to see all the things you're talking about, which I think are really right. And I'm thinking of a particular historical theme on the right that has survived for over a century in conspiracism, anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism allows some people to believe that everything you're talking about couldn't possibly matter because there are people pulling the strings somewhere. And, and I'm going to aim this particularly at Republicans. What should the GOP do about this, as well as conspiracist movements like QAnon that rely on such theories? Um, what should Republicans... Are you talking about George Soros as being the subject yeah, of... George Soros... Um, yeah, but they don't, they, but they, don't like, they, don't, they don't dislike George Soros because he's Jewish. Okay. They do, I mean, George Soros is religious. George Soros, I don't know George Soros at all. He could be, I don't know what he practices. He's maybe ethnically Jewish, like Mark Zuckerberg's, Zuckerberg's ethnically Jewish. I don't imagine that that matters whatsoever. Certainly, um, it didn't matter that they, that they um, or, uh, you know, there's been conspiracies over Warren Buffett about how, he, how he's made billions. There's, there's certainly opinions about Oprah. So you're saying that all of this is about power and that these conspiracy theories aren't specific to anti-Semitism. I think the bigger thing is Soros is the largest single funder of left-wing causes in the country. Zuckerberg is a huge funder. It's a money thing. It's not a Jewish thing. I mean, you will have Republicans who would lay down their life for the protecting Israel. I don't think that there's anything anti-Jewish about mainstream Republicans at all. If anything, I would say a majority are extreme Zionists. So it's the same way that the left had this this maddening obsession with the um, Koch brothers. The Koch brothers were behind everything in the 2010s. Anything like the Tea Party wave on the left, I remember if Republicans succeeded in any way, it was the Koch brothers. They had built this scheme and they were funding... Okay, they were funding some organizations, but the people were not there. They could... You can't just manifest movements in this way. Same thing with with Soros. Soros' organizations see openings on DA races, and they have done for a long time. And as far as QAnon goes, it's something that I really don't understand. I, gen- I, I understand. I know what the whole idea is. 
I have a hunch, and this is just a hunch, and I have a few people who are um, within my family even who are, I guess, QAnon light. They're not QAnon people, but they repeat talking points of QAnon, I think. I think that, and I wrote this in the piece, there is a certain population in this country that they were in the cultural majority when they were growing up and making their way throughout adulthood. And now that cultural majority doesn't exist. So the only way it must have been lost is that a larger being than themselves forcibly erased it when in fact their congressman voted it away. Or the culture just changed, or the World War II generation died out, or they didn't sit there and spend time with their kids pushing the correct culture, or they weren't involved in civic institutions that have all died out. Um, if you read um, Bowling Alone, the great book Bowling Alone. The, the thing is, is that, and this is something that's not popular, I think, either the left or the right, but in my experience, mostly on the right, it's not popular. It is much easier to sit in your recliner and watch cable news and spend time on Twitter than it is to get out of your house, run a civic organization, spend time with your neighbors, create a block party and do church events or whatever the case may be. It is much more difficult to keep civic life alive than it is to stay at home and complain that it's not alive. And People have chosen the latter of rather staying home and complaining, why aren't things the way they used to be, rather than trying to provide some avenue for things the way they, they used to be. And people often think when they're on social media that they're doing work, that they're actually doing political work. And oh, yeah. that it's it's an activity that is replacing work. I'm reading this wonderful book by Robin Morris about how Georgia women made um, made the state Republican and how they did it was knocking on doors and going door to door and throwing tea parties to which they invited Democrats and said, you should really be a Republican yeah. and so on. So that that kind of work, I agree with you, doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Um, Claire, wait, on that point, can I tell you, I've worked in campaigns for 15 years. You don't understand how maddening it is when you sit there and you have someone's voting records and they voted in two of the last five elections and they sit there and they tell you, no, I vote in every election. They think that they do. And you can't yell at them and say, no, you don't. But they don't. People genuinely believe that they are helping in a lot, a lot more ways than they actually are. I see this in my own family where they sit there and they say, well, I'm doing so much. Well, no, you're not. You don't even donate. So how are you doing it, it in their head? They think that being on Facebook is a participatory event when in fact, all you're doing is talking to the same people that just agree with you because you've unfriended everybody or you've unfollowed everybody or whatever the case is, who disagrees with you. So I want to come back to your point, which you also made in the article that conservative boomers in part turn to conspiracies because they can't cope with or don't understand, and I'm going to quote you now, that their country wasn't stolen from them. The leaders they elected going back to the 1960s let it go. Right. Now, Phyllis Schlafly said something similar in 1964, <laughs> and, and you're an old friend of Phyllis Schlafly's, yeah. and she was specifically targeting Eisenhower. In your view, who are the leaders since who are responsible for the big cultural and political changes that partisans on the right are distressed about? Well, George Bush and his father, George H.W., and Clinton. I mean, there will never be enough books that will be interesting people to read to write about China. 
What should have happened after the Cold War was we should have brought Russia into the world community and isolated China, and instead we did the opposite. Start opening China, and opening China did devastate countless, countless Americans and their jobs and manufacturing. And uh, George W. Bush, in my opinion, was the worst president of all of my lifetime, for sure. I don't want to say of all time, but one of the top five worst presidents of all time. And not just for the Iraq war and his mishandling and the creation of the spy state on American citizens, the complete destruction of, of, of things to have to have a to totally ignore our border crisis, what he did to push for, you know, I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's endless. It's endless. But on China's, Pat Buchanan always talked about this, this idea that, you know, America is a, is a nation that has oftentimes had to have a mission. We are a mission. I wrote this in my book. We're a mission nation. We were going to expand to the Pacific. We were going to sit there and annex Texas. We were going to sit there and defeat the Nazis. We were going to, we were going to defeat the Soviets. We had a national unifying mission. And after the end of the Cold War, George H.W. Bush's national unifying mission was we were going to spread neoliberalism throughout the world. That is not a mission that any American had signed on to outside of very, very small elite circles who would never bear the brunt of that. And they're, all of their belief systems, the idea that you can impose democracy in the Middle East, that the fact that you've normalized, you can, dem- you can democratize uh, China by opening their economy, everything was wrong. It was wrong across the board. And oftentimes the people who suffered the most of it were the ones who could afford the least. They could afford the least amount of uh, of, of turbulence in the, their economy, in their lives, and they bear, bore the brunt. So I have a lot of disdain for the Bushes. And I think that that was, I think George W. Bush, especially because his father wasn't around that long, is the is the number one culprit of almost everything the right to test from the, from the lack of social trust, which is in cause, a lot by mass immigration to um, the destruction of blue collar jobs in this country to the normalization of China to the opioid epidemic. Totally forgot about that. The man who won, who red state and red county America voted for twice, either sent their kids off to die in wars that they shouldn't have fought or turned a blind eye with the Sackler family. And then the Mexican drug cartel killed their entire neighborhood. So I blame a lot of it on George W. Bush. I think he was truly an awful president. And that's why the first political activity I ever did in my life was I knocked on doors for John Kerry in Pennsylvania. So <laughs> I've come a long way, but I was, uh, I still don't like George Bush as a president. And I don't, I'm sticking to it since I was 17. You know, you've always been a man of principle, Ryan. <laughs> things I love about you. Um, so I want to talk about Donald Trump for a minute because sure. he plays a curious role here. And, you know, for all the reasons you said, you were the first person I knew who called it for Trump. I yeah. mean, way back at the beginning. So on the one hand, he sold himself as a break with that establishment past and as the person who could restore the world that conservatives long for. And on the other hand, as you point out in your post, he didn't do it. Right. So life in the United States became more chaotic. It became less predictable. But also Trump was one of the many politicians who became and still are responsible for spreading conspiracy theories. So let's listen to Rudy Giuliani a few days after the 2020 election, and he's at a press conference held at the Four Seasons Total Landscaping outside of Philadelphia, and Giuliani is explaining to voters that Trump lost Pennsylvania because Republican election monitors were not permitted to examine mail-in ballots. Got to be a pattern. As a friend of mine says, I don't believe in conspiracies, 
but I also don't believe in coincidences. Kind of funny that all Republicans were rejected here, and all Republicans were rejected in Pittsburgh, and it amounts to about, gee, just about the 700,000 votes that President Trump was ahead by two days ago that disappeared. And we have no way of knowing, because we were deprived of the right to inspect, if a single one of those ballots is legitimate. That is unheard of, it's illegal, it's unconstitutional, and we will be bringing an action challenging that. And I emphasize to you, it's only one of the many other infirmities in this election. I think this is a great example of a classic modern conspiracy theory. Because what Giuliani said was not true, Republican monitors had full access to the vote counting process in Pennsylvania. We actually know that. But we also see the mix of factual and unfactual narratives here that Marjorie Taylor Greene refers to in the clip I began with. Political corruption is, of course, not unheard of in local Democratic Party organizations. And Trump's electoral lead did disappear quickly once the mail-in ballots began to be counted. But everyone expected those mail-in ballots to be mostly for Biden, and Republican vote counters were in the room. To what extent do you hold politicians responsible for generating and using conspiracies cynically for their own purposes? You know, I think that it's happened for longer than I've been alive. The election in 1960 was stolen from Nixon legitimately. I don't know if that was pushed as big. I'm sure anyone who thought it was a conspiracy probably was. There were always people who pushed conspiracies on the right, and some of them happened to be correct later on. When Joe McCarthy said there were Soviets in the State Department of FDR's government and, and the government subsequent of that, he was correct. Now, were there Soviets in every corner of American life underneath every bed? No, there were not. But he did have that that kernel of truth did exist. And then the larger anxiety of it really took over. Trump has been saying that elections were stolen since before he was president. He said that the 2016 election had fraud in it and he won that election. So it's not shocking that a man who says constantly that the elections are stolen ends up saying the elections are stolen. I think that COVID certainly provided a large amount of cover for that because there was a lot of things that normally would not happen that happened because the COVID rules were changed and and uh, ballots were done differently than ever before. I mean, it's just it was true that COVID provided this case where things were just different and chaotic and crazy and votes were counted differently. And ironically, of all people, Bernie Sanders said it correctly that there will be blue and red mirages across the country that people will have. And um, the problem of states taking so long to count votes provides that anxiety and gives root to that anxiety. And if I was a if some, my secretary of state of any of these states, my number one thing would be like, how do we count votes faster? Because if their votes are counted faster, it gives it provides less of a uh, anxiety that elections will then later on be stolen. So I, I do blame him for those things. And at the same exact time, I think the problem with Trump is he is the he's the biggest lying president and the most lied about president at the same exact time. The media would have a lot better of a time making headway with Trump if they weren't so insane about dealing with him. So like, take, for example, I remember the Washington Post wrote this big thing. It was like, 
72,000 lies of Donald Trump in 100 days or something like that, right? So it was so long, obviously, no one's going to sit there and read it. They're just going to attach the headline. I read it because I'm a maniac. And one of the, like, the lies, for example, was he said, make America great again. Well, that's not true because America's like that. Like they took literally things that were not even state, like they were not facts. He just made a statement and claimed it was a lie. And so the distrust in the media is to such a point. I don't know if at this point it would take a really stellar journalist to invest a long and a group of stellar journalists to invest a long period of time building trust with Americans and being able to sit there and try to break it. But politics has become a lot like religion in the sense that people, they have their opinion and then they look for the facts to sit there and support it, or they look for the the tribe to sit there and support it rather than vice versa. And I just think that that is, I think that, and I I, I just think that that's probably the biggest problem of it, but I, I don't know how, I don't know how broad the Trump coalition is anymore. I think it's beginning to wane significantly. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it is it is fraying and splintering. But, uh, you know, I want to talk about religion because Trump and religion work together a little bit in these conspiracies. First of all, you, in your piece, you point to the decline of what you call traditional religion. Yeah. And I'd love to know what is traditional religion from your point of view was a certain kind of faith actually a bulwark against those conspiracies? So if you look at like Ross, the writings like Rostothat from the New York Times, he wrote in his book, Bad Religion, that like the a person is naturally religious. And when they do not have a traditional church, I'm talking about Presbyterian, Catholic, Jewish. If you don't have a traditional church that is built on a set of timeless principles, I'm using timeless principles or cornerstones or whatever, people will find their religion somewhere else. They will find their religion in politics. They will find their religion in Oprah, in Eat, Pray, Love, in uh, Deepak Chopra, in New Age nonsense, in QAnon, uh, left-wing conspiracy theories. Something will fill that void to make their life worthy of living and that they will be part of a bigger organization than they themselves. Evangelical is certainly a Christian religion, but evangelicals have the ability, like a lot of Protestant faiths, to, and well, not some Protestant faiths are very, very, uh, like Orthodox Christianity, for example, is very inflexible. Some Protestant faiths are fairly inflexible, but evangelical Christianity for sure is one that you can just make your own church by your own pastor and you can then create your own set of bylaws. And you don't even have to go to a church. You can watch it on television um, and or these mega churches. I've been to a few evangelical churches. I'm born and raised and practicing Catholic. So it's definitely a different experience. <laughs> One that I'm not used to. Never seen a rock band out of a church before. That is, I think, the creation of this, of evangelicalism and the vast um, movement towards evangelicalism. I think certainly complements some political stuff. As does on the left, you have some versions of very loosely organized religions, which is, you know, you'll see, I mean, you walk down Manhattan and there's a church and it has a Black Lives Matter and a gay pride flag. Well, where's Jesus Christ in all of this? You know what I mean? This is really the, t- the conversation. I'm not saying pastors can never talk about religion. I'm not saying pastors never should talk about current events, but 
what their main selling point is, is here's the politics you agree with and Jesus is afterward. You know, there are times that my faith challenges me. There are things that I do as a person that if I went down political rabbit holes, it may lead me to dark places. And it is the faith that brings me back. And it is the church that brings me back. The reason I think I have a I, the reason I don't believe in the death penalty is because of my Catholic faith. It is the sole reason. It is the holy thing. But certainly if I was a rampant fiscal conservative, I would look at euthanasia and say, what a fantastic idea. We can get rid of all this cost that people have like late in life thing. But it is in part my faith that sits there and says, well, then it allows both the government and corporations to say, well, let's take the easy route out and have people kill themselves. And it steals humanity from people. It is the faith that pulls me back and makes me and challenges my political beliefs. And too often I have found that people are choosing their political, their religious beliefs to complement their politics. I know a person who's changed religions five times in 10 years. And I mean, it's just based on what fits their political mold. And um, yeah, I think that that's problematic. And I think that without these traditional longstanding multi-century long institutions, without those institutions that try to stay away from the fray. And, you know, you suggest in your piece as well that people need to act and they need to act on their own to flush these conspiracies out of their consciousness and, and push them out of politics. But my question is, how do we hold those people who spread conspiracies, whether they're politicians or whether they're ordinary people with a megaphone like Mike Lindell or Roseanne (laughs) Barr or Alex Jones, how do we hold those people accountable for leading others astray? The hardest part is the people of their own party to sit there and do it. And people like everyone is afraid of getting the backlash perfect example. Al Sharpton literally created a riot that killed a man and spread mass amount of anti-Semitism throughout the black community in the 80s and 90s in New York. I mean, calling them Jaime Town and Diamond Merchants and all the rest of it. Unprecedented damage. MSNBC continues to have him on and major corporations continue to pay him. And no one says anything about it. Like, how dare you? I have, I, I, I was, okay, I'll tell you a personal story. I was at an event and Carrie Lake was there and um, and she started getting up and I was sitting there and eating my, you know, whatever chicken sandwich or the hell they were giving me. And I was with my my employees and she started talking about the election being stolen over and over and over. And I looked at them. And I said, everyone up. We're leaving. I'm not sitting here through this. Like, I just I will not sit through this for one more second. And they all did. I mean, I'm the boss. So but <laughs> so I have some sway, but I stopped caring. You know, I understand why people believe the 2020 election was stolen. I understand their concerns with ballots. I'm not dismissive of it. Certainly, if you have not worked in politics for 15 years like I have, I would have the same, maybe the same opinions. So I don't dismiss them because I I don't dismiss um, lack of knowledge as, as just incompetence or bias or malice or whatever. I just think you don't understand this and therefore you have been uh you're following something i feel like naturally a lot of people would follow in when it came down to 2022 that this election was stolen i'm not doing this nonsense anymore though this is not going to be every time we lose it's a stolen election and what is the message you're ultimately sending out don't vote 
just give up on democracy, give up on America, have a dictatorship. What is the natural conclusion on the left? No one sat there and um, punished any of the 2016 Democrats who refused to certify the election. And so it's hard for them by 2020 to sit there and say the same exact thing. I think you have to really be okay with bucking the trend of your party at some point or the other and worry about the fallout later on. And, you know, no one, I'm lucky enough that I, I built my own career and I don't, I'm not owed to anybody and no one owns my opinion. And I work for some people when I have to, but I usually work with people I really believe in. And that I don't, I, you know, at the end of the day, I'm at a point where I don't have to do this. I think a lot of people are not in that same position, but I think we'd be much braver and better if they just said, okay, enough. And let's do the hard work over the easy thing, which is just to yell and just to be upset in our own private homes. When somebody sits there, somebody, you know, of some level of credibility sits there and says, X, Y, and Z is wrong. Something is going on that is not correct. Rather than dismissing them wholeheartedly, I think that it is up to the job of really smart investigative reporters to sit there and look at it and say, okay, what is their claim? And where is, is there any credibility in this? Rather than saying, no, you're a conspiracy theorist, go to the corner. Because it's in the corner that they can manifest a real following. But if they sit there and say, you know, A is true, but B is not true. C is inflated, but kind of true. That's when I think real conversations can happen. And journalists build credibility among readers. So, so Ryan, there's, there's a question I always end with. Why should our listeners be thinking about the role that conspiracy plays in their lives, consciously or unconsciously, right now? That it is because it allows you to not... Um, one, not speak to people who disagree with you, whether they be in your family or your former friend group or your neighbors or whatnot. I think that it allows you to be lazy as a citizen. I think that allows you to sit there and just give up on things. And I think that it, it, it allows you not to be challenged intellectually to be a more full individual. Um, I think those things are very, very important. And it is why we are a slovenly nation, not just in our uh, BMI, but in our, in our civics. Um, and that is problematic, uh, for the long haul. And I don't know what our country, you know, we are lucky enough that we still have enough boomers who do do this work because they grew up in a country where those institutions and those civic organizations were important, uh, but we're going to vastly lose them in the very near future. And there is no sign that the millennials and the Gen Zers and the ones that come after them, alpha generation, whatever it's called. We'll even know what that world is, let alone be able to continue it. And at that point, it's, you know, all hands on TikTok. Whoever has the most followers, I think, can be able to sit there and spin the truth, whether they like it or not. And that's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. 
You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.